When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I wanted to continue with uh, the series called The Poet Speaks, and maybe even make it an every Saturday night thing for about a half hour or so. And this will just be a place where I read quotations from poets, painters, biographers, creative types, uh, simply to show the, the simple variety of how people get on when they are creating things to just see how they do it and to comment on it and to hopefully to keep others from falling into the trap that I did, which I think was not to sort of revel in the variety of ways in which people are creative, but to latch on to certain people or to latch on to certain aspects of their lives and to imagine that uh, I could find some literal equivalent of it in America today. Uh, one example that I made last time was, <clears throat> excuse me, simply of longing for some equivalent of literary Paris in the 1920s, and only recently realizing that many of, uh, the only reason that many of the writers who congregated in Paris at the time were able to do so was because France, France's economy had collapsed under the weight of, uh, of uh, the expenses of World War I and its aftermath. And so that a recreation of that life in Paris is simply not possible. There would be no reason to go to Paris uh, with a few dollars unless you really had good connections. And uh, in many ways, the same example holds true for New York City. Uh, I mentioned last time the the anecdote that I heard about W.H. Auden, and in many ways, a lot of these things are just anecdotes. I don't know the substance of this at all. It, it was probably just a sentence that I came across uh, in an article about him, and it said that he came over from uh, England and... Uh, spent the rest of his life in the United States, and this was such a definite move that uh, the standard biography of him is uh, in two volumes, the English years and the American years. And as far as I saw it, he lived in a, uh, uh, a sort of a rundown apartment in New York City. He wasn't much for teaching 
or uh, for a more structured social or um, money-making life uh, with writing. And so he basically supported himself by writing reviews for the New York Review of Books. I don't know how true, how literally true that is, that you can make a living just from writing reviews. But uh, it's also true, I think, that his collected reviews span some six or seven or eight volumes, so it may not be too far from the truth. Or just an old friend that I heard of who was able to move to New York City from uh, California in the late 70s and find an apartment on St. Mark's Place and stay there for decades. Uh, I don't think anyone, unless they had a lot of money coming in already, could do the same thing today. So these quotations will sometimes uh, follow a thematic uh, a thematic course and sometimes we'll just be uh, at random and we'll see what comes up. The first comes from the poet Conrad Aiken who was also a good friend of T.S. Eliot's and he talks about how when he was young and in college, I believe this is in college, uh, how he came to write poetry and exercise his mind in writing different kinds of poetry. And he says, quote, I compelled myself all through to write an exercise in verse in a different form every day of the year. I turned out my page every day of some sort. I mean, I didn't give a damn about the meaning. I just wanted to master the form. All the way from free verse, Walt Whitman, to the most elaborate villanelles and ballad forms. Very good training. End quote. And I imagine it was very good training. Uh, one of the poets that I know that I'm in contact with frequently these days, his wife is a teacher and is teaching uh, high school students poetry. And I don't think an email passes without him telling me that his wife is teaching the kids such and such a verse form, such and such this or that. Uh, and it's wonderful to know that there are 15, 16, 17-year-olds out there who are learning to rhyme, who are learning to do sonnets, who are learning not just what free verse is, but how somebody like Walt Whitman did it, or who might come across a remark by T.S. Eliot where he says, if the poem is good enough, this is paraphrasing him, but if the poem is good enough, technically there is no such thing as free verse. It is still something that is under the poet's control, even if it doesn't, even if it isn't under the standard control of uh, of traditional rhyme and meter. And it's also uh, it's also worth thinking about that if you if you take this kind of discipline on yourself, after a while you you have an idea for a poem, and this is something that has happened with me uh, many times, you have an idea for a poem, and and it's almost as if you are beyond the idea of practicing these different forms. 
And what you do is sort of look through the list of the ones that you feel most comfortable with, and suddenly there's a match with the poem that you want to write. I mentioned a while ago that I became sort of obsessed with the uh, the long alliterative line that uh, Langland uses in Piers Plowman, and I knew almost immediately that I wanted to try to use that kind of a line to tell the story of the Greek philosopher Pythagoras. Uh, in a rational sense, there's no reason for those two things to meet in the middle and turn into a poem, and yet they did, and I think it's, uh, it's not a bad poem. And the more forms you know, the more voices you know, the better off your poetry will be, and I would say your prose too, if you have a, what you might call a more literary voice, or a more popular voice, an essayistic voice. Even if you don't use them all the time, it's worth having it, uh, having it in your belt, as it were. <clears throat> and it's also, if you're talking about discipline, it's also worth just trying to loosen that discipline. When I, because when I came to write the, the poem about Pythagoras and to see as my model the long alliterative line of Langland's Piers Plowman, which was uh, written in the 14th century, it wasn't that it became obvious right away that it was impossible to follow that form literally but it became apparent pretty quickly that unless I was going to do a translation of Piers Plowman or a modernization, I guess you would call it, there wasn't really a reason to slavishly copy uh, what, what Langland was doing in Piers Plowman. And, and the same is true for, for anyone who is trying to take inspiration, as I have, from the Anglo-Saxon poets uh, a few hundred years before Langland, it's possible to find translations of those poems that hew more to the meter and the, uh, and the, the alliterative scheme of Anglo-Saxon poetry, and it's useful to, to find the ones that are more strictly adhere, that more strictly adhere to it and it's useful to find the ones that don't. It's, it's in some ways, uh, it might even be useful to read a translation by someone who isn't being, who isn't being, who isn't strictly following the rules, but who has the heart of that kind of poetry in them, so that the Anglo-Saxon, the feel for the Anglo-Saxon shines through. I had this feeling with uh, Seamus Heaney's translation of Beowulf, but then uh, I came across another translation, I can't remember the names of the poets who did it, uh, who were more strictly uh, involved with the, uh, with the line, and, and that was good too. And I've been working on poems about uh, In the Voice of Shakespeare lately. And I found a, a wonderful book called Shakespeare's Words. And 
to just get a feel for the words that he did use. I don't want to read his, uh, I don't want to read the plays yet, reread them yet. Uh, I don't want to be too inspired by what he actually did write. I want to be inspired by what I remember of him writing or what I find in biographies of him. And in, uh, that's the same way too. I don't want it to be a slavish sounding Shakespeare or an obviously uh, archaic sounding Shakespeare. I want to imagine what maybe what Shakespeare would sound like if he were writing today. So it, it's all of, it is all, as Conrad Aiken says, very good training, as long as we don't take the training too seriously or too literally. Uh, Seamus Heaney has a wonderful remark uh, about a, a poet that I won't name, and he says that this poet, he writes well in a certain form, but his poems overall are of low wattage. Um, it's sort of like uh, the quote I mentioned from Robert Lowell in the last episode where it says, um, the poets he knows write a very musical, difficult poem with tremendous skill, yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow. Uh, it's become a craft, purely a craft, and there must be some breakthrough back into life. I would almost say that if you don't have the life, the form is uh, sort of incidental. It's, it's not worth achieving if you don't have the life in there as well. The second quotation comes from a biographer of Leonardo, excuse me, biographer of Leonardo da Vinci, and he says, Leonardo was always less concerned with the finishing of a picture than with its conception. His ideal would consist of imagining the picture and getting someone else to paint it. Invention is what mattered most to him. Painting was, above all, a thing of the mind. As he clearly put it, Leonardo says, to reflect is noble and to realize is servile. And that comes from a biography of Leonardo da Vinci by Serge Bramley. And I came across something very nearly identical um, from, uh, of course, I'm forgetting the actor's name, uh, Richard Burton, who said that he almost got bored with the idea of, of completing something, and that the real thrill for him was thinking about it and preparing for it, not actually doing it. And when I said in the... <clears throat> the episode last week of The Poet Speaks that uh, that one thing I hoped this would do would, would be to steer creative people away from <clears throat> traditional ideas of what a poet or what a painter or what a musician should be or what a poem or what a painting or what a movie or what a song should be. Uh, I would like to do that as well. And this is something to consider along with da Vinci. There's also uh, Michelangelo 
who obviously did his David and did his Pieta and did his uh, Sistine Chapel ceiling. But there are also many unfinished statues that he did. There's the Pieta that he was working on uh, up to the end of his life, and it's one that I don't think he ever imagined finishing or felt the need for finishing it. From the stories that I've read about it, it's sort of this statue, this piece of carved marble of uh, Jesus in the arms of the Virgin Mary with uh, Joseph of Arimathea hovering over both of them with his uh, pointed hooded cloak, which uh, the face of which uh, is that of the aged Michelangelo, I believe. There was, there was this, these three people were uh, Michelangelo's house guests up until he died. It was almost a comfort for him to have this statue in his house wherever he was living and to live with them, to circle around them every day with his hammer and his chisel and all the other tools that he would use and to uh, make them, to live with them, to hear them speaking to him, I'm sure, about what their shape should be, what their size should be, how how they should look. And it wasn't about finishing, it was about actually doing it constantly every day. And of course there are the the slaves, the, um, I can't remember the full name of them, that uh, Michelangelo also carved, where where you see where in many cases the the uh, the figures that are rising they look like they're rising up out of the marble because in many cases the the marble block is still more there than the than the carved figures are they look like they're caught in the rock they look like they're being birthed from the rock um, they're miraculous things. And in the same way, too, you have Leonardo da Vinci's uh, notebooks, his, his, uh, his drawings, which before his time, I don't think, I think it's been said that nobody would have seen a reason to save an artist's drawings or preparatory sketches. There just simply wouldn't, wouldn't have been a, a need to do it to the point that uh, there are some of his paintings or some of his more famous uh, drawings or etchings that people aren't really sure, uh, is it finished or not? And then the question becomes, well, does it matter if it's finished or not? Is it is the idea of finishing itself uh, kind of uh, beside the point? There's uh, uh, Flannery, Flannery O'Connor's great line that uh, you don't finish something, you say the hell with it. And uh, this happened to me recently, actually. I, uh, I've gotten back into writing science fiction or horror stories. And I've tried to do the discipline of starting a new story every first of the month. And for about an hour every day in the afternoon, while I put Sesame Street on for my daughter, I go in another room and chop away at the story. And the story I wrote last month uh, 
Uh, it took almost the entire month to do, and I really had no idea. I felt good about it, but I had no idea if anybody else would. And I did what Flannery O'Connor said. I said, to hell with it. Uh, this is as much as I can do with it right now. It feels shaped. And I sent it off, and almost immediately it got uh, a second and a third reading uh, at a magazine, and I'm hope hopefully we'll hear from somebody soon. So that um, Da Vinci might go a little too far when he says that to reflect is noble while to realize is servile, but I think we can get his point. And mixed in with that somewhere could also be that what he means by the servility of realizing an idea, of finishing an idea, at least in his day, was because what he was reacting to was the, uh, the patronage of rich people. There are wonderful stories of, uh, of noble ladies, and I'm sure many others, who really wanted this famous painter, Leonardo da Vinci, to do their portrait, and he just refused. And in fact, one of the reasons why the identity of the Mona Lisa, uh, people believe they know who it is, but one of, one of the reasons against that uh, identifying her with, uh, with a certain woman is that this woman and her husband were, compared to the noble people that da Vinci had turned down, uh, for painting their portrait. Uh, these people were of a slightly lower class. They weren't as rich, they weren't uh, as famous, they weren't as powerful. Um, and so people wonder, why would he paint this woman and not this other one, this man, not this other one? It's, uh, it's a wonderful idea to think about. It's also a very hard one to think about when Every day, uh, just by turning on YouTube or going online, where creative people are bombarded with not just other creative people, but successful creative people, successful poets, successful novelists, successful painters, it's very hard to not feel inadequate in the face of that. Um, and. It's hard to put yourself in the position of someone who who maybe just wants to create in private, maybe someone who doesn't want to be known for years and years uh, what it is exactly that they are doing. It's uh, because in a way, uh, da Vinci was uh, in a privileged position, if we can use that word about this uh, today, to say that, because probably by the time he said it, he um, didn't have to worry about making a living off of his work. And uh, Michelangelo himself probably had uh, a bit of clout to be able to not finish the commissions that he did. There are many, many commissions that he did not finish. And he was probably allowed to do this in a way that an unknown painter or a sculptor may not have been allowed to do. Let's see here. The next one is. 
this is something from the from the poet William Meredith who is asked why this is his response to the question of why he wrote so few poems and his response was why so many ask any reviewer I remember a particularly wicked review of Edna St. Vincent Millay whose new poems weren't as good as they should have been and he quotes the review as saying this Millay seems to have gone out of her way to write another book of poems End quote. and Meredith says you're always afraid of that that could be said I believe of certain people's poems so I wait until the poems seem to be addressed not to occupant but to William Meredith and it doesn't happen a lot I think if I had a great deal more time it would happen more because I would get immediately to the typewriter but it might happen eight times a year instead of six, not much more than that. I'll say this because it may be interesting or important. I think it's because poetry and experience should have an exact ratio. Astonishing experience doesn't happen very often. Daily experience is astonishing on a level at which you can write a poem, but astonishing experience would be the experience that is not astonishment of reality, but astonishment of insight. Now that uh, that brings to mind a few things. The first is, again, um, it would be easy for me in my uh, if I were in my early twenties and I came across that remark to suddenly think, "Oh my God, I am writing way too many poems." This guy is saying uh, eight times a year he writes a poem. Uh, that seems completely insane. Uh, I am writing too much. And it would be very easy to read something like this, especially if you are someone who likes William Meredith's poetry. I can't really remember reading him. Um, or if I did, I, it hasn't stuck with me. And so this is just a, a thing to what I mentioned in the beginning, that there really aren't any rules. There are only uh reactions of this kind. Uh, for William Meredith, uh, eight times a year might be all he can do to write a poem. And as he says, he might do it more if he had had the time. I'm not sure if he was a teacher or not, but whatever that was that kept him from writing more did so. Then there's also the story, another one of W.H. Auden, uh, where Auden is at college, probably Oxford, I believe, and he's already known as a poet. He is already uh, famous among his peers as a poet, and the younger poet, Stephen Spender, comes to him, and the same question comes up of how much should you actually be writing every day, and uh, I can't remember what Auden said. He may have said of uh, four poems a month or two poems a month or something like that. And the story has it that Stephen Spender went back and said, all right, that's that's as much as I'm going to write every month. Uh, I wish it were as easy as that, as following a prescription. Um, I remember a remark by Thomas Merton, uh, the Trappist monk and also poet, who 
was responding to uh, a remark by T.S. Eliot, and Eliot was supposed to have said that, that he treated a new idea for a poem as a temptation, and that he uh, resisted the temptation for as long as he could to write a new poem. And Merton, being a monk, said amen to that, or something of the sort. And all of this, the reactions that, that people give um, depend upon their circumstance. Merton is a monk uh, who may feel self-indulgent writing poetry, so he might be looking for an excuse not to write so much poetry. Uh, Eliot, if we look at his early letters, is very intentionally trying not to write too much. Uh, he seems to know that, on the one hand, that he's not capable of writing very much poetry at, a, at, at his highest level. But there are also letters where he says, if I keep doing it this way, if I have, you know, uh, the wasteland in 1922, and then nothing, and suddenly I drop the hollow men on you, or Ash Wednesday, it will make, um, it will make a new poem from me an event. Uh, it will get more notice simply because I haven't been seen or heard from in a while. Um, but then at the same time, uh, in, a, in a line that I'll probably get to at some point, in this series again, I just typed out something from Thomas Hardy, uh, who wrote poetry. He, as a young man, he he came to London from the from rural England and wanted to make it as a poet. And when that didn't work out, he he wrote his novels. And when the novels uh, became sort of scandals, and after he had made enough to support himself from his novels. He said, I'm not going to write novels anymore because you people uh, won't take to them. Uh, I will just write my poetry. And I think between what the late 1890s and uh, 1926 or 27 when he died, he wrote something like six or seven hundred pages of poetry, I think, something like that. And he says somewhere that... Uh, a poet is a bad judge, almost, of, of what they've written. Um, he says, there are poems of mine that I love and that I think, this is a paraphrase again, that I know and love and I think that are great, personally. And there are ones that I've wanted to cut from collections. And he says, the ones that I want to cut, that I thought about cutting, are the ones that people remember, and they're the ones that get into anthologies. And so he says he came around to the idea that I basically will publish everything, uh, I guess within reason. He's not going to publish something completely horrible. But basically, and a finished poem, he will publish it, and history will uh, sort it out. And that's another thing that is worth uh, reminding ourselves that um, uh, that poets and writers, as much as we would like to be, as much as I would like to be personally, uh, we cannot be the curators of our own museum. We won't know which of our poems or stories or essays will last, or if any of them will. 
and so we are and so I guess what what I mean to say is that the the idea of the poet or the artist today seems to be in the public mind of someone who is uh, extremely determined and uh, almost far-seeing into the future and they're almost literally shaping their future reputation in the present moment and what all of these remarks seem to say is that just simply uh, just simply isn't true um, we don't know what will happen at all and so it is almost best to uh, to uh, fall onto Hardy's line if you want to to publish all that you can and some of them will spring up like flowers and others will not and there's also the another remark by Ezra Pound who told uh, when the young poet when W.S. Merwin was young and went to visit Pound at St. Elizabeth's in Washington DC in the late 40s Pound told him uh, you know, you're young, what you need to be doing is writing at least 70 lines of poetry every day. You don't have enough experience to write 70 lines of poetry every day. Uh, you might think you do, but you don't. So what you need to do is learn another language, and uh, Pound suggested Provençal because that was his gig. And he said what you need to do is, if you can't write uh, 70 lines of poetry every day, at least translate it. Uh, get into translating, translate other people's work. And then after Louise Glick won the Nobel Prize, I found, I think, the only interview I could find of her uh, uh, online, where where she completely is uh, blows uh, Meredith's, William Meredith's idea out of the water. And she says that that what she does uh, very often is she starts a book of poetry and if it catches on it catches fire and she writes almost everything uh, within a few weeks or a few months and and then she's just fallow and doesn't write for months or years excuse me years after that so there are all these different ways of thinking about it. Are you sort of swimming along on a, on a consistent current where you uh, bob up and down uh, every month with your uh, four, four or six uh, poems a month or eight poems a year and just consistently doing that? Or is it all coming out in a rush? Do you uh, write your own poetry? Or do you translate? Do you uh, ask your friends for advice and try and follow their advice? Uh, what is it that you do? Uh, it almost doesn't matter what the answer is. What it matters, I guess, is that you're doing it. And the answer of other poets, I don't think either, really matters what exactly it is that they're doing. Like, um, uh, like Conrad Aiken earlier, uh, what we're looking for is very good training, not really necessarily very good answers. Um, we're not looking for something to slavishly follow. We're looking for life, some breakthrough into life again. Um, and for some people that is 
eight poems a year. Some people it's a hundred poems a year. Some people it's uh, it might be zero, and the year after that, there will uh, just be an onrush of inspiration. It is difficult to do, and. I think that will be it for tonight. I'll try and keep these at about a half hour or so. So thank you very much for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.